Hey guys, Maria Menunos here. Before your favorite TV after show begins, we want to let you know about my new show on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. It's called Conversations with Maria, and it's live Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Go to conversationswithmaria.com for more info. Buzz you later. You're tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries, and your number one source for after show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans, producing after shows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows, interviewing celebrities and showrunners, and bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin. So I never know which version to expect. I don't know if it's going to hit really hard right up top or if it's going to start with the, the, the chords that creep in slowly. Hi, welcome back once again, True Believers, to your ABTV X-Files Season 10 After Show. Join the conversation by following the hashtag ABTV X-Files or by joining us in the live chat. I am, as always, Lex Michael, all over social media, at the Lex Michael. And on the other side of the table, as always, I am joined by... Frank Moran. You can follow me on Twitter at HappyGoJackie. And, of course, it's Lucretia Lyon. And if you can spell my name right, L-A-C-R-E-T-I-A and L-Y-O-N, you can find me anywhere, because there's only one. And joining us tonight to break down episode four of the new season, which is entitled Home Again. I'm not going to bury the lead. It is the writer, director. I am so over overjoyed to welcome to our table Mr. Glenn Morgan. How are you, sir? Yes. So, uh, we talked a little bit before we came into the studio. We definitely, of course, want to talk about tonight's episode, but I wanted to, with your blessing, take our audience on a little bit of a journey. Uh, I was looking at your body of work, and I, as I mentioned to you, have some questions about how you got from thing to thing, how the dots connected, uh, as it were. (laughs) Just all over the place? Just sometimes fly right by each other? Yep. So, uh... So I, I do, uh, again, want to remind our listeners, please, if you have any questions during the course of the show for our guest, please throw them at us. Just keep them coming. Always just lavish them. Just bury us in a sea of questions. I wanted to start, uh, because I was looking at your IMDb earlier today, I wanted to start with the earliest credit that I saw listed there, which is a movie called The Boys Next Door. <laughs> and I, okay, based on your facial expression. No, no, I was worried. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I just I wanted to ask you about how that project came to be. What was the genesis of that? How did you go about getting that script written? How did you go about getting it sold? And then how did that help you transition into television writing, which which makes up the majority of your credits? Uh, well, um, my longtime partner Jim Wong, yes, who wrote and directed the second episode here, um, Founders Mutation. He and I went to Loyola Marymount, and when we got out. Patricia Witcher, who is a big line producer, uh, I, the Thor movies, I believe, mm-hmm. and um, she got us in this place, Sandy Howard Productions. And Sandy was one of the old time guys who was like he made uh, he's best known for like a man called Horse, an Angel, Honor Student by Day, Hooker by Night kind of thing. <laughs> sure. And um, Jim and I and this other guy Mike were editing international trailers in the day. 
that we wanted to write, and Sandy had this script called Killer's Holiday that he wrote in 1959, and you know, you're in the office and you're reading it, and you go, uh, what if this is like in cold blood? It was from the killer's point of view. Sure. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jim and I like rewrote that, and um, it got sold. I don't really know how, because I was like editing, and they go, hey, your movies get made. You're like, cool. And uh, Penelope Spheris um, directed it. Oh, yeah. Mm. And it was Max Caulfield and Charlie Sheen. <laughs> However, one day, Nicolas Cage had the script and called Crispin Glover and read him the whole script. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. I really like Charlie and uh, Max. I was like, oh, my God. But Charlie, uh, Sandy Howard didn't know who um, Nicolas Cage was because he was just getting started. Sure. And years later, I worked with Crispin, and I'm like, did this really happen? He goes, oh, yeah, sorry, yes. He called me. He's like, oh, you worked with him on, you made Willard. That's right. Yeah. And um, so that's how that came about. Okay, so then how did that, because the the next credit that I saw after that, I mean, you start getting into TV writing. I oh. see, like, you had a credit on Booker, uh, an episode of Booker. Uh, <laughs> you get to work for Stephen J. Cannell. That's awesome. That's right. Well, uh, as a career goes, uh, we did that movie, and then nothing. We ate, um, you know, macaroni and cheese sure. for several years, and uh, there was a writer strike in 1988, and um, we had uh, gotten together with this new agent, Marty Adelstein, and um, who now produces Aquarius with David, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, "How about TV?" Which at that yeah. time you're like, "Never." And after the writer strike, I was working in a art gallery a crappy art gallery in the Santa Monica Mall and I'm like anything I'll do anything (laughs) when I feel like too if it's important for our audience who maybe is not aware like TV now is not what it was then as far as if you were a TV creative you tended to be stuck there you were not able to transition out of it it was you know a little bit of a from certain perspectives a little bit of a kiss of death if you wanted to do other things well we're really fortunate because Steve Cano who's passed away um He's a legend, you know. He was a story editor or something on Dragnet. You know, he created the Rockford Files, and he wrote with David Chase, went on to do The Sopranos. You know, Steve did everything. And uh, at Cannell, it was really like graduate school because he loved writers. And from day one, we did the casting of our shows. We did the editing of our shows. And we worked with these guys, Bill Nuss and Eric Blakeney and uh, Steve Cronish, you know, works with 24. So you got a lot of friends it was just a great um, school. And so when we went, uh, worked there on Jump Street first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then Booker. Then the Commish. And from there, Peter Roth uh, ran Stephen Cannell. So when we left there, uh, he was a 20th Century Fox and said, you must see this pilot, The Exiles. Yeah. And that's how we ended up there. So what was it, when you see that pilot, what was it that, uh, that intrigued you to say, like, I- I'd like to be a part of this? Uh, there's a longer story. I don't know if people have heard this at the same time, but um, there was a pilot at the time called Moon Over Miami, which was like the hot pilot. And uh, Harley Payton had created it or developed it, and he had worked on Twin Peaks. It's like the greatest thing ever <laughs> yeah. made. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I it's mean, coming back too. I know. <laughs> I, like this is great. Excel is great, but <laughs> like, <laughs> when is Twin Peaks on? And um, met with him. We hit it off. He's a good guy. And but we hadn't seen the pilot. And. We got Marty Edelstein, who was our... said, Peter Ross demanding you watch this X-Files pilot. We're like, okay, Peter's great to us, so we'll watch Mm -hmm. it. And then 
It was everything that Jim and I liked. It had a little Silence of Lambs, a little Close Encounters. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm like, wow, this is great. I love the UFO stuff. I'm like, oh, this is great. Hmm, we got a problem. Well, we'll go watch that other pilot, and that'll be good too. And that, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, I'm actually working for this guy now, but he chewed me out for 20 minutes, like. And then later said, you made the right decision. (laughs) (laughs) All you young writers, stay friends with people. (laughs) So so you get into the X-Files and you find yourself in this environment and you start you start turning out these scripts with, with James Wong and I'll I won't I'm not ashamed of it in the slightest our joke between the three of us <laughs> when you were coming in here was the fear was it's going to be a little bit like uh, the Chris Farley show sketch on <laughs> SNL where it's like I'd be sitting here going do you remember that time when you and James Wong created the Lone Gunman that was awesome <laughs> you know but I just I, I have so many questions about how these came to be because you wrote I don't want to lay it on too thick you are responsible along with James Wong for some of my favorite episodes of television of all time and the two of you guys created these these indelible these such strong striking characters and stories so I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about a few of them that jumped out at me specifically as I'm sure I think uh, Frank Lucretia maybe you have a couple of questions as well but before because I'll, you you guys know me. I'll just go all night. So I just wanted to like give you guys an opportunity to start throwing mm-hmm. specific uh, story and character questions out if you have any that come to you right off the top of your head. Oh, well, you kick it up. I, I have a question uh, just in terms of leaving and coming back originally. But we'll deal with a little bit just starting off of the X-Files. So, yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Well, I mean, so... <laughs> right, first thing I said, I mean, I was joking, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So you guys are responsible for the lone gunman, mm-hmm. among many, many other uh, wonderful characters. But, like, where, where where, did where did they come from, these wonderful, magical beings? The lone gunman. <laughs> you know, that uh, uh, any show, you just get a... You got a bunch of guys. And it was, like, really... We're really fortunate. I mean, um, it was Jim and I and Chris. You know, Chris first. And... Um, Dan Sackheim was around. He was uh, he later won. He beat Jim Wong for the directing Emmy, uh, NYPD Blue. He really was around in the beginning, but he was a director. Um, Howard Gordon, Alex Gonza, you know, they've won an Emmy for Homeland. And um, Marilyn Osborne was around there at the time. But we didn't have a writer's room. Everybody asked about the writer's room. They would go off and... and think about that and think about that and the network really wanted um, the first few shows to not they were looking for a monster show they didn't want it to be UFO of the week and so that's your assignment is right you like come up with something that's not a monster show a uh, UFO show so Jim and I were in our office which wasn't much uh, bigger than this you know at around this hour of the night and uh, Jim's like um, what if a guy came through that air vent right now like oh yeah and you know that's how it happens you know um, in that particular case the tombs thing and as you just go on you need other characters Scully needs a mom and a dad and you oh, killed them you both you killed both of them yeah. by yeah. the way which is a very specific <laughs> distinction I wanted him to introduce you as Glenn the Grim Reaper <laughs> no I did not I did not want to kill her mother um the lone gunman, Marilyn Osborne, and I went to this UFO convention at LAX, and I really hadn't been to one. And there was this, these three guys, and it was a table, and they had uh, Xerox sheets. They were color. I don't know. 
with like orange was space shuttle. Blue ones were, I don't know, the NSA, whatever they were. There was a whole table of different things, and one, they looked exactly like the long gunman. One was in a suit, and one had a rock and roll shirt. I'm a Ramones <laughs> fan, so I made that a Ramones shirt. <laughs> and, um, the, the guy had pulled out, he's like, give me, you know, he's like going on, he's spouting, I said, give me, give me your $20 bill, and then some dad, whatever, hands out the $20 bill, and he goes, look, there's a magnetic stripe, and they track you when you go to the airport or whatever, and he rips the bill and pulls out the stripe, and the dad's like, that's my $20 bill. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I just wrote them verbatim. <laughs> um, I'll be honest that I wasn't completely happy the first, I, don't know, I forget what episode they were in. And, uh, you know, Tom Braidwood had been our assistant director during the Jump Street years. Yeah. And Jim was casting them, and he was frustrated. He's like, Get, Braidwood can do it. And figuring that was a one-shot deal. And uh, so that's how the Lone Gunman came about. Everybody else, you know, you figure out, well, Scully's mom should be like this, and the dad should be like this. I don't know if Chris said he was in the Navy or something. I don't know. Sure. Well, okay, since you brought up uh, Scully's dad, I wanted to ask uh, about the episode Beyond the Sea, which is, uh, again, I think is just an absolutely phenomenal piece of television. I wanted to ask uh, about that relationship, and obviously we're still seeing quite extensively in these new episodes uh, those family ties referenced, and I love uh, in... Even the last episode, the one that aired last week, Mulder and Scully meet the Were Monster, which was written by Darren, uh, references that tie back into like the name of the dog, Dagu, which was another another harpooner on the Pequod. I wanted to know where where did the Moby Dick of it all come from? Um, I, don't, I kill the parents; he kills the dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's worse. yeah, that's way worse. I don't, you know, I don't know what made him. Uh, I don't recall why he was a uh, Navy captain. I. I I don't know if I don't know where that came from. I don't remember, but because the Navy captain and all that stuff, and you have nicknames, just thought it would be neat if and figured he was Captain Ahab that she would be Starbuck. Sure, which could have been an inside joke because of the time we were going. Hey, we're going to Vancouver because <laughs> they were the only ones that had Starbucks. Like it was like a big <laughs> thing, and um, so that's where that came from. And then everybody just runs with it you know you never know I mean you know that thing back in the day Mulder having a thing about porn it was a one shot <laughs> joke and then Howard picked up on it and made it a two shot joke and then it becomes a thing you know so you some, sometimes you just never intend sure for something to be a character thing the Elvis thing uh, just seemed like a joke at the time and then David was like why can be an Elvis and like, he liked Elvis <laughs> yeah. and, like, and then once you hear that you're like Get the Elvis jokes in there all the time. <laughs> sure. So yeah, and I feel like so many people who work in the business that have, have done work that has been met with some success. I feel like they they get asked a lot. You know, did you know at the time that you were making something that was that was going to be so embraced and people were going to pick it up and run with it in that way? And I feel like most of the time you just you go to work to do the work and you do the best job that you can at the time. But I feel like yeah, it's not you never know, especially when you're doing a series. You don't know when you're working on season one that. Decades later, people are still going to be talking about it. Man, you're really right. I, I you know, this show, David and Jill, you know, they weren't. Jillian, I think, was pretty unknown. David had made some movies. Um, Randy Stone, who has passed away, did the original casting, and he was like, these two. Sure. Chris had not done horror, that no one had done horror, you know what I mean? It was like really an empty. 
and they hated you didn't see genre you didn't see science fiction on TV back in 1993 and uh, I remember Entertainment Weekly is like uh, no doubt about it the show's a goner when we were all like yeah I guess <laughs> <laughs> and you just and at, at that time you could just do what made uh, what yeah I heard this about Monty Python they try to make each other laugh so we just Howard and Alex and Chris and Jim and I and just try to go that's a cool idea sure <laughs> you know and then um, then you bring in Kim Manners and Nutter and uh, Rob Bowman and it it starts to take off you know it's got to be programmed you know when Jim and I were there it wasn't a hit it was on Fridays and it wasn't a, they moved it to Sunday when we were doing the show Space Above and Beyond then it became a big hit sure you know so um, but I've been on other shows you're like yeah this thing looks good and then it's you know dead so you never know because I was reading an, article, uh, an interview with you and you were saying that you know, the uh, like 22 24 episode uh, kind of structure for a season that is just really grueling like something about like the the the, uh, the, the British the, like the BBC kind of style where it's maybe 6 8 maybe 10 episodes per season is, is great how 10 if you're Doctor Who that's yes, it that's it right. yes exactly it doesn't go that far nope so, I mean, just try those seasons where you're trying to do 22 to 24 episodes. What was it like just being, was it did, was it just grueling at some points, trying it's, to make it that far? It was totally grueling. Um, and you know that no matter what, three episodes are going to be horrible. Yeah. No matter what you do, you just, something happens and, okay, here we are. This is horrible no matter what you do. Um, you know, I remember being on Jump Street and they went like, I think it was like do 22 and then they dropped four more. I mean, back in the old days, Bonanza, I think those guys did like 39. <laughs> wow. You know? mm-hmm. And um, this is horrible because you just want to leave. <laughs> no, you just want to go on a break. You just, every night, you're just like working on stories and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and, and this show is tough. Like, how, you know, I mean, back then, how many monsters, how many UFOs? You got to sure. do the research. You got to really research and you had to do your best research the science when in 93 you didn't have you didn't really have the internet I had to like get an idea and then run down to UCLA medical library and look stuff up for <laughs> sure um, it's yeah we just have it too I don't good miss, now I don't miss that at all <laughs> and I mean I guess that's kind of leading a little bit into this and it's kind of jumping forward uh, in a sense where I know we'll have a chance to kind of delve back but just since we're kind of talking about that short uh, season structure this this series coming back for six episodes. So was there a lot of debate between you guys when you're trying deciding how many episodes to come back with it? Um, I imagine I'm not positive. I imagine that Fox would have like ten. Um, I think between David and Jillian's schedule, they talked about eight, and then it took a while. It becomes negotiated down to six. Um, but. You know, I've worked in television since 1998, and the last the millennium was the last time I was on. 1997 was the last time. 1988, last time I was on a 22 episode show was 1997. So I did the show. The River was eight episodes, and Those Who Kill was ten episodes. I I don't know any shows that are 22 except maybe some Shonda Rhimes. I'm not sure about that, but. Um, so that's where the um, they found a way now to make those profitable on the old one. I was getting started. <laughs> if you said I wanted ten episodes, the studio would tell the network go to hell. How dare you suggest? <laughs> <that>? <laughs> I had to do a hundred to make a profit. 
and now I believe they can make a profit on shows that are canceled after 13 or something like that. That's what I was told. I don't know. Yeah, well, and also there are so many more ways now for an audience to find uh, episodes of that show. Whereas, you know, I mean, when the X Files started, it's like you either catch the episode when it airs, or yeah. if you're lucky, maybe it'll cycle back around in a in a month, maybe. Right. But now, you know, with Netflix, with iTunes, with all these different types of on demand services, you can you can get a six episode order and you can find your audience because the it's all about niche audiences now, and that audience will just passionately attach themselves to mm-hmm. the thing. So. So yeah, you can you can monetize in a way that I think was absolutely unfathomable yeah. when when this show started. Totally, I, you know, some people, some of these sites, I see them making fun of Fox for going. We're not listing overnight ratings anymore, but I think they're right. You know, when you see, I I don't know the last time sports is the only time I watch TV live. Sure, everything else, you know what I mean. And uh, Chris and I watched Netflix in bed or something like that. I don't. I don't watch TV, right. per se, you know. Yeah, and I feel like that's a model that is becoming increasingly, rapidly yeah. outmoded, you know. And, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I feel like just listing overnight ratings is not really an indication of whether or not something has legs now. Because it will do great numbers on a streaming service mm-hmm. where it may not have had a, a big live draw. And it's it's more about... Uh, cultural penetration, I think, than who's actually watching it on its right. initial airing. It's a little bit harder to track something like that. But yeah, it just seems like those numbers, it's not really a great way to keep track of who's really watching at this point. But that being said, by all accounts, it does seem like, without specific numbers being listed everywhere, it does seem like Fox is fairly happy with the numbers that this new run has been getting. I would imagine so. <laughs> Now, for you, I mean, I guess we're talking about a little gap between the show ending. We did have the movie in between and then the show coming back now. For you as a, as a writer, uh, do you, was it in that intervening time, were there times where you might be reading something, you hear about something, and you just kind of filtered through like, ah, oh, that would have been a great X-Files episode? Or were you able to just kind of put those characters away for that time until the show came back now? Well, I don't want to jump ahead from what you want to ask, but tonight's episode, uh, I was doing this movie, Willard, and my wife, Kristen, and I, it was 2002. Um, we're taking the, uh, A.D. Roger and our friend Julie to a Canucks Red Wings playoff game. Oh, wow. And uh, going down to the arena, and you just, and from this downtown, it's just like hundreds or a couple thousand people walking this way. And there was a man standing in the street looking the other way. He's very tall. Uh, I imagine he's homeless. He had a trench coat. And he had, you know, we've all seen people with a thousand yard stares, they call it. And this, this guy was, it was indescribable. I would just looking like that in the street. And he had a Band-Aid attached here and here. And, you know, 15 years later, Chris and I are still debating what was coming out of his nose. And it was just unfortunate and horrible. And you just like, that man was from another... <laughs> and everybody we went to we went to shoot the next day and we talked about the band-aid nose man everyone made fun of us sure. and then uh, shortly after we went to see the Jim Rose Circus who was in Darren's episode with the Circus Freaks humbug and they juggled chainsaws and stuff and when we walked out of this um, club on a Granville there he was I was with my friend Julie and she just grabbed my arm I'm like I told you there he is the band-aid nose man and so Whatever that's been now, 
12, 15 years now, listen. And our house has been the band aid knows, man. <laughs> so I'm so like, cool. oh, if I ever had an X-Files, that's what I would want to do. Yeah, and I just hope that that Vancouver Canucks uh, Red Wings game was uh, not after the dramatic goalie battle that I witnessed in Dallas, the Dallas Stars Vancouver Canucks, because I believe that would have been the same year they went off against the playoffs. But I'm a sports fan. 2002. Yeah. The Canucks had won two in Detroit, and everyone was like, yeah. oh, God, and then <laughs> Detroit scored memory. from the blue line, and it was yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you had a. Creepy thing. You just go, oh, if we still had X-Fire, wow, if we were still doing Millennium, that's what we would do. So, you know. Sure, yeah. And, yeah, and that's that's really, really cool that you can. You see something, you know, however many years ago it is, you know, 15 years ago, and then all of a sudden, yeah, now here it is. It's on the Fox Network. They're ripping, this dude is ripping, literally ripping people's limbs off on the Fox Network. <laughs> he wasn't ripping up any Canucks fans on the way. <laughs> the Red Wings did that on their own. <laughs> um, they yeah, always but- do. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like we are going to jump around a little bit, but because we are now uh, touching on tonight's episode, I, uh, wow, first of all, mm-hmm. just the the brutality of the Band-Aid nose man and the way he would quite literally just, I believe I saw a head come off with some spine still attached oh, to it. That's so cool. Yeah. I, you know what? I don't think I asked for that. <laughs> but uh, Bill Tarazakis, our special makeup guy who did Darren's, but, you know, he's extraordinary on set. It was a spine and head. I'm like, all right, that's cool. And I I really appreciated the way that you balanced this incredibly dark, I would say, and guys, you tell me if you disagree, I think maybe the darkest uh, material that we've seen from this run of shows up until this point with some really, uh, I think, emotionally potent stuff for Scully, specifically as relates to the death of her mother, but also what I think we're starting to see emerge as a through line for this this series of episodes, which is the loss of their son. And I just thought that was a really interesting uh, thematic uh, parallel between this, this trash man and the idea of Scully's guilt of having given up their son, uh, this, this question of did we treat him like trash um and watching i mean watching jillian anderson play those scenes like a couple of we're sitting out there watching the episode and a couple of times i just had to sit back and take a deep breath so i didn't start crying emmys (laughs) you know she needs it how many times has she missed it that episode alone you know she needs to submit that reel yeah so so (laughs) i wanted to i wanted to ask because there, the decision is made that you're going to write six episodes. And uh, Chris Carter's got the, the book and the mythology episodes. Uh, you've got one. Darren's got one. James Wong's got one. How do you balance what you what story you want to tell in your individual hour uh, versus feeding into the overall arc of this short round of shows? Uh, Chris and I first met at this place of Hollywood Boulevard where I like to go. And we sat there and he goes... Uh, he told me what his thoughts of the third movie were and so he he broke it down that way and I said well I want to do this band-aid nose man and uh, Darren and I we lost you know our mom a few years ago and I'm like I want to write about that if we had had more than six I think I would have done band-aid nose man and Scully's mom sure but you gotta put them together and um I knew what Darren wanted to do because uh, he had had this idea for a long time. 
and uh, Jim is on American Horror Story, so he was kind of in and out a little bit. And Chris was very much, uh, here's the first one. I kind of have an idea for the last one. What are you guys going to do? I said, we, we have to deal with the kid. Uh, and, and you know, we weren't there. Uh, I don't know when William was born. I, w- I want to say that didn't come about till season nine. Yeah, I was like, okay. it was pretty late into it. I did my homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did look at that stuff. and But I think we have to deal with that. And so that's what I wanted to deal with. And it felt like um, a chance for Scully to talk, ex- explore being a mother. And um, from from there, that fed into the idea Jim had, and you know, not um, they were they were intended to be this episode aired second. Yes, I believe we we talked about that briefly mm-hmm. that they're being aired out of order. Right. So that as we were doing that, that's how they were going. And um, then Chris, that was you know pretty great. If you're a writer, he's like, I want to see what you do. He wanted to see what Jim and, and Darren and I did. And, uh, you know, again, unfortunately, because we only had six. I mean, when we started out, we really thought we'd have uh, Frank Spodnitz and, and Vince Gilligan, uh, Howard Gordon, you know, probably do one. So it would have been like, what's everybody want to do, you know? Um, so that's how that kind of shaped out. Sure. So you, you mentioned in passing uh, a handful of minutes ago that uh, you didn't necessarily want to kill Scully's mother. Is that, is that you referring to just having to balance both of those big stories in one episode? Uh, no, I wanted to. Uh, no. <laughs> Sheila Larkin is the best, and she's married to Bob Goodwin, who was our line producer during, back then. And um, um, there's no need to take that income and all that kind of stuff away from somebody it's hard to do but uh, I talked to Sheila and I'm like this is a story I want to tell and uh, it seemed to be important for Scully and uh, another aspect of her motherhood sure and um, Sheila was unhappy like she's great but I think she doesn't like. No, I had this idea that those who kill and I, Kathy, um, not Bates. Yeah, so the same thing. I don't want to lay in a bed for two days, right? But you know, they really don't want to die. They don't. And but Sheila did it because once you see what Jillian's bringing, no actor wants to go. Yeah, I'm going to be in my trailer, get a double, <laughs> you know. And so to watch those two work that out, and you know, those are two actors that have had this relationship off screen as mother and daughter. For over twenty years, it was it was it's a heavy duty thing. So I don't want to I don't want to sure. kill her for that reason. Oh, that makes sense. But you feel my you... brother kills dogs. <laughs> yes, yeah, I remember that. There's yeah. the dog killer, everybody. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you do, you feel a very real sense of loss. And especially when, if you are a fan of the entire series and you've watched Mulder and Scully's journey since the very beginning, it's. It's just, it is one more thing that is so, it's such a heavy, profound thing for Scully to lose after losing her father, then her sister, now her mother. Mulder has uh, essentially no family mm-hmm. left to speak of, either uh, aliens or assassins or, uh, you know, so it is. It's it's a very uh, profoundly, profoundly heavy thing. And it does, as a, just as an audience member, like you feel that loss and you don't want to see her have to course yeah Yeah. you don't want to have to see her deal with something like that but i think it it does it works so wonderfully this this 
crisis that she's having, this emotional crisis over giving up her son, now losing her mother and feeling uh, an absence on both sides of the spectrum, I think is was, was crazy effective. I also really liked the tie-in going all the way back, I believe it was season two, the flashbacks to uh, One Breath mm-hmm. with, uh, with Mulder at Scully's bedside after she was returned. And because we're jumping around, um, going all the way back to season two, you mentioned that, you know, when it, when the show first started, it wasn't necessarily a hit. People, you know, it was on Friday, then it got shuffled around. And it was about midway through the second season, right, where there was a, a certain chunk of the mythology that seemed to to pull a greater audience interest. Well, because Joey got pregnant. Right. And so I think she got pregnant halfway through filming year one, something like that. And so... We knew that she'd be delivering in September. So there's some mention at the end of the first year, oh, things are going to change. And um, so, you know, there was mythology, but uh, we never planned anything that (laughs) heavy duty. You know, so once she was not going to be around for a few weeks, you know, she vanished and stuff. So that totally dictated, you know, sometimes you go, I got an idea. And other times the idea goes, this is what you got to do, you know? Well, I think when you think of X-Files, many people think like, oh, well, it's either the mythology kind of episodes or more the creature of the week sort of episodes. Right. When you guys were coming back with the six-episode run, uh, was there a debate? Because certainly with Darren's episode, I felt like that was such a great way to just to pick up on those characters after all this time and kind of – and I could think there would be argument being made that that could have been the episode that could have kicked off the season because I felt like it was really – like as we talked about last week, Mulder getting his groove back of a sense. <laughs> but then you guys started – but in the sense of like starting with the conspiracy episodes or the mythology episodes as opposed to like the monster of the week, was there a debate or like – if we're coming back for these six episodes, what's the best way to kind of come back into it? I think to Chris's credit, he was always going to do what the writer wanted. Uh, that's... Uh, the show worked first, in my book, first and foremost, Dave and Julian. Because uh, X-Files has been ripped off by a lot of shows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. They didn't have Dave and Julian. That it's whatever it is about them, I want to g- go through UFOs and werewolves or whatever with them. Second, you know, Chris always respected what the writer wanted to do. And so going into it this way, you had David and Jillian and you go, what do you guys want to do? You know, so um, that dictated what we wanted to do was <laughs> how how much um, mythology. And, you know, Darren, he never wrote mythology. Jim and I, I don't know, did one or two. I'm not, I don't remember. But, you know, that was always um, Chris and Frank did that and... Uh, Chris is going to handle it. Well, for you, uh, coming into this, you've done many projects between the X-Files ending and coming back, Intruders, many of the Final Destination films. When you're coming back to this, what did you bring from all those experiences that you've been on projects that you've worked outside back to this episode where you're writing and directing it? Well, you mentioned uh, Intruders, and I got to, as long as that comes up, I mean, after Buzz. Yeah, Marissa said, bring it back. That was, she said, so hi, bring it back. That was, uh, you guys... It's one of the only places that were nice to us, <laughs> and um, I, you know, still appreciate it. Um, oh, we bring the Canadian crew. You know, we went back to Vancouver. Uh, Jim and I weren't there, but they shot your six or whatever in Los Angeles, and I, you know, I, I would say they lost the character. Vancouver has a natural 
kind of scrim over it and it's a it's a it's a beautiful place the best place but it's creepy <laughs> sure. i mean the light is from a different angle all the time and the crew uh i would go up there you know there's a lot of tax breaks and the dollar from time to time and all that jive but the crew is great and um our camera operator mike wrench i mean we've worked with him jim and i like gotta have mike you know uh, mark freeborn the production designer that big spaceship oh. that he built you know, he did uh, Final Destination 3 with us and Willard. And, uh, I mean, it was great to have our crew and that family back together. You know, that's... So what would I take from other shows the crew? Because it was all from <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, you said that you directed this episode as well, as well as several other ones. And Michelle, NCIS Fanatic Live, had a great question. Just sort of, um, how do you look at it? Like, how do you feel about directing an episode that you wrote? Well, I, the, I don't know how I could direct one that I didn't write, mm-hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, Chris and I talked about this, like writing it is like your first prep. You're writing it and you go, ah, I don't want to be here. Ah, I'm going to be here. You're kind of figuring it out right then. It's having somebody else like, you know, that uh, really got looked up to guys like Dave Nutter when they would come like or Rob Bowman, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and that's the part where I come to realize that I directed that I need to go back and apologize to them because I'll go, just do it, Bowman. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'd be like, oh, I know what he was mad about. So... Um, because we were talking about some of the, the interim projects between the X-Files leaving the air and coming back, uh, a couple of titles uh, in your filmography that I g- grew up with a little bit, uh, Final Destination is one. I remember seeing it shortly after it came out, uh, and just it just captured my imagination in such a way, and I was genuinely disturbed by it because when, you're, when your villain, as it were, is death itself, if you're prone to internalize movies in it can make you afraid of uh everything absolutely everything so i wanted to ask uh what was the what was the genesis of that project where did that come from uh new line had an idea from this guy jeff reddick and they're like but they had like a akmar bergman (laughs) death with a sickle type thing (laughs) no no we won't even go in there jim and i like no we don't want to meet and they were like insistent on it and uh we went in there and um i I really like the uh, Val Luton movies, you know, the, uh, yeah. the cat people where they didn't have the money mm. to show stuff. So we go, we'll only do it if you can never see death. Figuring, okay, we'll be out, we'll go to lunch in 15 minutes. And they go, that's great. So, you know, and then every Halloween I'm like, man, New Line Bullet. You know, they have no masks to sell, no, <laughs> no yeah. merchandising. But uh, that was... And then uh, the way we did that... It was after the third one, I was somehow, I came across Omen 2. I'm like, oh, I think we ripped this off. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because the way the devil would go after people, and it became a little bit more Rube Goldberg, like this to that to this to that, than the first Omen. So it must have lodged in my hand or something. It's an homage, not a ripoff. Yeah. I mean, I and, yeah, the scene where Terry gets hit by the bus and you play Into the Void by Nine Inch Nails, which is one of my favorite songs in the entire world. That's just, it's one of my favorite <laughs> cinematic moments ever. I don't care. I'll say it. I'm, I'm the sick one here. I was not bothered by the movie. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> it was great back in the day. Our friend Gary, he went to a, a matinee and he said he's sitting there. There's only like 10 people in the theater. And then all of a sudden, the ushers come in and line up. And he's like, is this a bomb? 
what, what, what the hell's going on? Is everybody saying like, then the bus hit would come and everyone would go, ah, and the ushers go, ah, and they leave. <laughs> <laughs> so they knew what time that happened in the movie. It's know? not just me. But speaking of things that are just me, I mean, one of your most famous X-Files episodes ever is Home. Yes. And everyone else talks about how disturbing this is, how gruesome. And I was like, well, I just thought it was pretty good. But I'm from East <laughs> Texas, so that didn't really seem that out of the ordinary That's for me. That's a place in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I know. That's what I thought was weird. I was like, there are rednecks there, too? <laughs> well, uh, James Carville, <laughs> the Clinton says... That's him. Mm-hmm. It says politically, Alabama is Pittsburgh to the west, <laughs> Philadelphia to the east, and huh. Alabama in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only note Vince Skilligan ever gave me was the, she says, it's the war of northern aggression. That was the only, because he was from Virginia. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and he clarified that point. But, you know, there was a lot in that, you know, Pennsylvania at that point is southern. There's mm-hmm. a little, not going on there. Yeah, and they went back to Pennsylvania in this episode. So is that, you know, why you named it Home Again? Um, Well, uh, one, I was being a punk, and I knew that people (laughs) would go, (laughs) Yeah, we're like, no Peacock Brothers. No, but, you know, uh, there was Home, and then the last one that we wrote at that time was Never Again. And I felt that all three of these were kind of examining Scully's woman and mother. Yeah, because whatever happened to Scully's tattoo from Never Again? Must be there. Now, talking about at home, and we were talking about a little bit of the music in Final Destination. I mean, certainly you've said that you like to use the songs that have a little uh, creepiness factor to them. So, I mean, the old chances are there for uh, for home. Uh, uh, but then, uh, wonderful, this, wonderful. Yeah, well, yes, yes. wonderful. wonderful. <laughs> but chances are was in oh, yes. Close Encounters. Uh, uh, but then this one, I, I you use uh, the song that you chose this evening. So, what made you choose this song? What's the creepiness to this song? You mean downtown? Yeah, yeah. downtown. Yeah. Downtown's creepy, right? You know, I think if you can describe it, it probably doesn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the only way I can say that. Like, wonderful, wonderful. My mom was a big Johnny Mathis fan. And I really, you know, Christmas time, Johnny Mathis on. I have no problem, Johnny But Something about wonderful, wonderful, the arrangement, that whistle, something is creepy. And everyone agrees. <laughs> but I think all of us sat there in, in the car, wherever you heard it, and went, that's kind of bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about downtown that has that. And um, uh, Final Destination, we use John Denver. Yes, a lot. Rock, Rocky Mountain. Yes. High, right? <laughs> and so, but it just has a different, I don't know. It's hard. It's like you just, I put on... Songs I have, CDs, I'm like, oh, this might be a good one. And I'm like, no. Or you go, yep. And then you get to it and you go, nah, it doesn't really work. I thought the end of Willard was going to use that Pearl Jam Rat song. (laughs) Wrote it. I listened to that song a thousand times. I'm like, put it in. Jim, the editor, he put it in. I'm like, this is awful. (laughs) And you had to go with Smashing Pumpkins. But if I I, I remember correctly, didn't they? They used the Smashing Pumpkins song, I think, all over the marketing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the marketing. Yeah. But that actually, since since yeah. Willard came up organically in the conversation, that was yeah. something else I wanted to ask you about because I remember being I don't even remember off the top of my head how old I was when that came out. But I remember uh, seeing I think a TV spot for the movie, and they they mm-hmm, had the song, yeah. they had the the Bullet Smashing Pumpkin song, yeah. yeah. And I'm watching this, and I'm going for the first couple of seconds. It's a short spot. The first couple of seconds, I'm going. What? What is this? And then the song kicks in, mm-hmm. and it's Crispin Glover, and what looked to my young eyes like a crashing wave of rodents. And I'm like, I'm in. 
I am take all of my parents' money. Um, but I want to know where that. What was the genesis of Willard? Well, you know that was a movie from 1970. Yes, with Bruce Davidson and Ernest Borgnine. I know I got to work with Bruce on Those Who Kill, and he's like the best. I, I just as a kid, I'm like that's the first guy I thought was a good actor. Oh. You know, Willard, and uh, the house is in our in my neighborhood in Hancock Park, and one day they had a. Uh, estate sale. So Chelsea's over here, my daughter, and I'm like, we're going there. <laughs> and we go over there, and you know, it's just like ashtrays and stuff. But the house is like, oh, yes, this is the house from the original movie. Like, yo, that scene was there. And I'm like, oh, I'm like geeking out. And there's nothing there. And I'm about to leave and go out the door and whatever. Somebody turned my head, and there on the fireplace, these two rubber rats. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> What are those? And the guy goes, oh, they made a movie here once. And they used those to fill up the background. And I go, how much am I paying for the rubber rats? Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah about 25 bucks. <laughs> so that I really admire that movie. I love that movie. And, you know, um, I want to direct. I'd rather not make a remake. But in this business, if you're known for X-Files and a horror mm-hmm. thing, and you could do a remake of a movie that made the mo- like, a huge amount of money in 1970... That was my way to direct. And did you feel, because it was a movie that, that, yeah, was a hit in its time, but also, as you say, that you were so taken by yourself doing uh, an updated version of it, like, is there a a greater sense of responsibility? Like, is there a certain feeling of, oh, man, I really don't, I really want to get this right. This this means so much to me. I really want to do this justice. Well, of course. And, you know, I had, uh, Willard has a... Portrait of his father, who was Bruce Davidson, and all that, and I really had great admiration for that movie. And um, you know, my the thing I was I really blew was uh, that movie was always like back of that era. It became obligatory to have a scene where you, you know, you threw your boss off the roof, <laughs> or you told your boss to go shove it or something. And times had changed. Sure. And so when he, like, sick the rat, rats on him, everyone's like, oh, I don't know, I have a moral problem with that or something. <laughs> Maybe he's so. not that nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Oh, man. But I can't, Crispin's just the best. You know, he's, uh, he was really great. He's like a partner in that. And um, couldn't ask, I really enjoy it. And Lee Ermey, too. I mean, the two of them couldn't be more different. And, uh it was a really great experience. Well, what was so you say he was a partner in it? What was the process of working with him on that like? Like a partner in what in what sense? Shaping the character or helping shape parts of the story? Yeah, I don't think we didn't want to talk on set. So you know, uh, Socrates <laughs> was trying to keep him from killing himself. He's like, and we go back in the dark, and he's like, I you know, he explains that people who murder people really would like to murder themselves, and he's like. He knew his cinema more than anybody. You went into work, you're like, man, I better know my stuff here. And he's like, I think he should kill the rat. And I'm like, whoa, no, 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 no. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> and so then we were working out that way, you know. And um, just like, how about if I'm there? How about if I'm there? And he was like, he. what was amazing to that guy, um, I was told this before because another assistant editor worked on him. Months later, I go, come on, the editing room, we're hanging out, we're cutting, come on. And he's like, he'd be watching, and he goes like, I I was much better on take three. I picked up the cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, check it out. And 
every time. That was extraordinary. <laughs> I'm the, the mental image of Crispin Glover analyzing him picking himself picking up a cup. He's a good director. His movies are interesting. He is. He's a fascinating guy. I feel like there are a lot of people who don't who haven't had the opportunity maybe to, to listen to him speak on right. podcasts who just know. Crispin Glover, as you know, as as the persona I think he is to a lot of people, is like he's well, he's that guy, he's that he's that slightly weird, maybe a little creepy off person. But you listen to him speak; he's incredibly intelligent. He's incredibly. he's very eloquent. Um, fast, fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, real quick, I wanted to uh, jump back because we haven't had too much opportunity for any of our our watchers uh, to jump in with questions. I didn't know if anything was going on in the live chat or on Twitter, or if everybody's just. Bumping into each other a little bit. I know. It's like, let me see if we can find. I know Michelle had that good question we asked earlier. And let's see. Yeah, everyone's just happy to have you here is all I'm seeing. <laughs> that was, mm. she's, she's looking at the ESPN scores. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, the stars aren't playing. So. <laughs> the second, the second, like, she actually she checked out as soon as you guys brought up hockey. Like she yeah. hasn't, oh, she's, okay. actually, she's physically here. Her mind has not been here yeah. since the hockey talk started. Um, this this was my thought. I think uh, a lot of the audience has the same uh, inclination that that we do to fan out really, really, yeah. really hard to maybe the detriment of, <laughs> of pointed conversation starters. Uh, well, I know uh, one thing that I, I uh, talked about in this episode, certainly, and Scully has that line, is just talking about, uh, uh, we was talking to the artist that uh, brought that Band-Aid Nose Man to life, just mm-hmm. being, being responsible. Responsibility. Uh, you have to take responsibility for something that you're bringing into this world. Right. So, what uh, what made that as the theme that you wanted to kind of address in that episode? They kind of really tied in nicely, both with Scully's story and with the the monster of the week, the Band Aid Nose Man. Uh, you know, probably some things. You know, in my life, looking around at some things, and then you start trying to. Um, You know, the band-aid nose man was going to be homeless. I didn't want to just, like, oh, the homeless guy. And you just uh, spent some time down in Skid Row in L.A., and you could see what was happening in L.A., where they're going, take them there. And they go, no, 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 take them there. And it was happening in a lot of cities. And um, so you start analyzing what's going on there, and you go, I just don't want to see that problem. Everyone believes they should have homes. Everyone should believe they should not be hungry. But you deal with it. I just, if it's over there, I can assume someone's dealing with it. And then um, you can uh, apply that to things in all our lives that we go, well, if I just don't see it, I don't have to worry about it. So I think that's where that came up. Because I know Darren was saying... it's not, it sounds pretty good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Darren was saying in an that's interview right. where it's like if uh, he's changed, like doing the X-Files originally when he killed uh, Skelly's dog, it's like now he wouldn't <laughs> do that. I mean, in that time he's no changed way. and grew that he would right. not no. kill that dog right yeah, now. Yeah. In the sense for you, what? How, how do you think you've changed? If you look back, like things you may have done back in the day that as you're coming back to do the show now, you're like, now I'm a def- I've, I've grown, I've changed in this intervening years. I, I would approach something differently now if I was in that same situation. I, I don't know. I really don't. It would depend on the situation. It mm-hmm. depends on the topic. I don't. I wouldn't want to really get into killing a kid. I've learned my lesson about killing an animal. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to kill an animal, but you know, it's like intruders. I just had people like execs wanted this character to drown a cat, and people were like, "Bye," you know. Yeah. And so um, things like that, I would not do. I don't. 
You know, I don't want to... It depends. If there was a good reason to do it, and I know that's the stock answer, but it's a true one. If there was a good reason thematically to do it, I would do almost anything. <laughs> well, so let me ask, because I think that's a fairly common well, thing. Well, now that I answered that, everyone's turning off. This oh, no, I was like, they're, 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 <laughs> yeah, but, but so I think it's interesting, because I am very much the type of person, and I, I think Lucretia and Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. I think you guys are as well, like, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you're, you're the first person where everyone's like, oh, home, the, the peacocks yeah. is so, it's so disturbing, you're just like, ah, awesome. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the type of person where when I watch Band-Aid Nose yeah. Man rip people's heads off with spine parts coming out. It's horrifying, but I'm still going, <laughs> this is awesome. He's just Tom Bertuzzi, right? <laughs> but, but I feel like there's a lot of us that are like that, but then you, you flip it, the second an animal is in even the slightest bit of jeopardy, it's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm no, not watching that. No, 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 you better not hurt that dog. No. <laughs> no, Final Destination Jumongos, it kills a dog because I want to show that death is bad. And mm. Get anybody. I'm like, oh, let's not do that. And he's like, <sighs> kills his dog, and then at the at the test screening, it was like, mm, just... I'm like, okay, man, that dog lived. <laughs> then we did this movie with Jelly the One. He did it again. He killed the dog, but then the dog came back in a parallel universe. People like, no, 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 no. That dog lived. We want him to laugh. Let's not do that anymore. Yeah, I feel like, like I, I feel like hurting an animal only works. That like I think the only example recently that I can think of where it works is uh, I don't know if you, uh, anybody at this table, but me has seen John Wick, where oh, the inciting incident <laughs> is that his puppy is killed. And it's only acceptable because he spends the rest of the runtime of the movie killing everybody that right, killed right, his puppy. Right, right, right. But still, but people aren't happy. Completely <laughs> rational movie. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lucretia, it looked like you were. Uh, somebody was saying something Let's that you were reacting see. to. Um, we've got Drew UK Izzle. I don't know. That's a lot of Izzles for me. Um, wants to know if you think they should end the series on a high note with this um, event or keep it going. Thanks for that yeah. question, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's uh, out of my yeah. realm. You're like, yeah, I'm not in charge. Well, uh, then I'll just ask a no, sports I always, question. No, I always felt... Yeah. <laughs> I'll ask a sports I, question. Back in the day, I felt yeah. X-Files should end happy. I was wearing a millennium. It should end sad. Yeah, because Lance Henderson hit his brick sentence. Sorry. Like, yeah, um, yeah. It's just amazing. I loved Millennium, too. Yeah, that was, that was much hmm. a dark show. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, but yeah, sports question. Why uh, Why did you decide to make Mulder a, a Spurs fan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> this no, episode, no, I was like, was I, do Tim, I need to explain that, guys? <laughs> Tim Duncan yeah, is tall, tall. And so he's like Tim Duncan. Yeah. Everyone would know Tim Duncan. Yeah, and then he and then you trash the 76ers as well. Because they're the only team worse than the Lakers this year. (laughs) (laughs) I I know, but I I, we know we did that in June, and I'm like, I hope they're still. (laughs) I hope they're still bad. (laughs) That's That's my joke. That's right. The 76ers they've been bad for a while. Look, I'm a Charger fan and a San Diego Padres fan, so I've taken enough jokes of that, so I can dish a couple out. Are you excited about the prospect of them moving up here to Los Angeles? Do you think it's going to happen, or do you think it doesn't they can... seem like it anymore? Yeah. About a month yeah, we ago, got the I Rams. for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it would save me a drive to San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you have all the, uh, the logistics of this particular episode worked out? Like, who is driving the garbage truck? Oh, all right. <laughs> Because so I feel that's like a, yeah. that's a creepy thing. Yeah, that's a creepy thing. It's the, like the right. ghost of Crycheck. The, the ghost of Crycheck. That leaked. That's that's an exclusive. Um, 
so uh, because obviously whether or not there will be more is not up to I think any one person. Assuming that there is an opportunity to continue to expand and play in this world, is that something that you would be interested in continuing to do? Sure. This is good water. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get some of the vodka I left in the fridge instead? <laughs> no, of course. You know, look, everybody, uh, it's, I, it, I'm not including those things, but obviously it's done well for them. Um, we all like each other. Sure. Those, you know, David's got a show, Julian's got a show, Julian's going to be on, you know, Broadway again, you know, and um, I think that's part of the, you know, now a six episode thing can really feel like you're doing a movie mm-hmm. because it's about the same production time, you know, two or three months or so. And um, it's just, I, you know, we'll see. It's just a matter of getting that. And I don't know what the, the money situation there sure. and all that kind of stuff, but I think that the uh, goodwill is there, I would assume. Yeah, it was. It's exciting for me as somebody who's been a fan for a, a very long time. I mean, I, I talked about I think on our first after show when we were talking about the uh, the the premiere of my struggle. I talked about how one of my earliest memories that is still burned into my brain is it's on our uh, graphic right there. The little from the opening titles, the white silhouette falling. Yes. <laughs> that that image is one of the earliest memories that I have. Um, and also, like uh, the my fandom for the X Files has has just continued. It's like a wave that I've been able to ride throughout my, my adolescence and, and after. Uh, my cat's name is Mulder. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's come up on this, <laughs> on this show before. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but it's exciting. It's exciting not only to see that world back, but to see that oh, there is still uh, this really palpable excitement. This this uh, desire for, uh, that a wide audience seems to have to go back and play in that world. Yeah, you know, it's... um. There's a lot to it. You have um, one, uh, Crystal keeps saying that when they ended the show in 2002, uh, we were all looking to the government to save us. Oh. And 13, 15 years later, whatever, 14 years, everybody's like, government? Oh. They're against us. Yeah. And you have Snowden and all that stuff. So then there's always going to be somebody trying to control somebody. So this that's always going to um, play. Coming, it was nice to see that excitement. You know, we had people, we all had badges or paparazzi and people on the street. I had um, that opening scene where he drives away. The bandy nose van throws the legs and he drives away. Is like we shot that next to where you buy your crack in Vancouver. Beautiful city <laughs> go there. Yeah. That park. And like they were, next morning it was on Twitter. I'm like, oh, who is two in the morning? <laughs> yeah. Take pictures. All that stuff is great. You have an audience that is made up of a portion of shippers, non-shippers. Give me the mythology. Give me the monster of the week. You're just not going to make everybody happy. And I think for, you know, for the most part, I think that, you know, done okay. Well, for you, because I know you, in some of the interviews, you're talking about, (laughs) you know, you did great. You're great. Yes. The uh, standards and practices, like in terms of home, like working with Uh that and kind of figuring out how much Mm -hmm. you get in. In the intervening years, now when you come back for this episode that you did, uh, home again, uh, standards and practices, do you feel like it's things are easier now to tell or are there things that are less, that you can't get away with that you could have got away with back then? I think standards and practices has always been, and when we did home, uh, we had this executive, Linda Shimatsuno, who was great, and I brought her in the editing room when we were doing the sheriff getting killed all that yeah. whole wonderful wonderful she was in there 
And so no one defended that show more than Linda <laughs> when the letters started coming in. I, f- I feel that standards and practices is very much like if someone can go recreate it, they don't want it. So a guy pulling out an arm and a head, not going to happen. So they're like, okay, don't do that. <laughs> or, you know, like cut a few seconds out or whatever, but no one's going to recreate it. If you, you know, in X-Files, I had this episode everyone hates with the vampires and the guy pours gasoline <laughs> on the floor. He's going to burn down the house, whatever. And then there's an insert of a match being struck and standards of practices that cut out the shot of the match because it was demonstrating how to light it. And throw it on. <laughs> so if somebody goes out in the world and does it, they go, I saw X Files. They got a lawsuit. Yeah. So, and a show like this is like, you're not going to have an alien probe <laughs> or whatever. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think they've always been pretty good with us. But I also want to meet the person that didn't know how to light a match yeah. until they watched the episode of X Files. know there are little <laughs> fire sticks that I had never heard of before and last night what, on, on the Fox network yeah. I saw these little fire sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well that actually brings a good question back to Michelle NCIS Fanatic Live had another one. She's Do the you, only one on there. I, I know. I think so. She's always giving us good questions every episode. Oh, okay. But yeah, she asked if the added commercial time that we have now versus the 90s made a little editing a little bit difficult? What makes it difficult is the X. Because we'd have, back then you'd have a teaser, that three-minute, oh, the baby, you bury the baby in the storm, boom, go to the main title. And then you have four X that were, you know, I don't know, writing-wise, like 18 pages, so you like 14 minutes, four, 12 minutes, something like that, like that. So you had more time to what Steve Cannon would call sneak and creep flashlights. Or now, um, I don't know, like six, five or six acts. And those last acts are like five minutes, five, six minutes. So that's a scene. You know what I mean? So that's what made us nuts is um, the way things are formatted now. And you think that that's not a, a big deal. But for all the writers out there to build up to a problem, you know, you want your act out to really be, you know, Mad Men never really did this, but, you know, Breaking Bad was brilliant in how they would like, Yeah. here's a problem, then you go to commercial, you want to come back. Um, it's hard to do when you go, oh, I've got five minutes to build up. It's not a lot, not a lot you can do. You know, with a show like this where back then you'd have two or three of those X-Files scenes in one act. You can't do it. Well, and that makes me wonder why they've never optioned FX, which is a cable network, from Fox to maybe do the X-Files instead. Because I know, you know, watching Justified, Sons of Anarchy, stuff like that, I mean, they're longer shows because they don't have to do as many commercials. But they're still the same act problem. Oh, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that started on cable because I never really came... yeah, 2010, I did a show on Cartoon Network. It was the first time I came across it. Mm. You can't be shorter than five minutes. Oh, wow. Now, I know you said that you don't have a chance to do the sneak and creep, but you did do a nice flashlight uh, looking yeah. around. They're great bringing back the flashlights in this episode. So that was fantastic. Uh, that was, you know, that was the second mm. show we shot. And the first one, you know, he was in that taxi driver outfit or whatever. <laughs> 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 
This is the first time they were. He was cleaned up. He was in a suit. Like, hey, Mulder. I was like, oh, Mulder, and I got the flashlights. I remember overhearing yeah. them going, "Hey, we got the flashlights." <laughs> <laughs> but there were like there were a number of really wonderful moments, and I think too. I mean, obviously, okay. So the Fox Network decides to air them out of order, but as we talked about uh, just on this show tonight. These shows, these episodes will now live forever for people to watch in any order that they want to. And I love the idea where the the first episode, I think, in the future that a lot of people are going to be watching after the premiere will be this one. And there are so many wonderful, uh, new, iconic images in this show that we saw tonight. The fact that they get such a wonderful hero introduction into mm-hmm. the episode, the two of them. And then, yeah, the, the amazing, uh, amazing atmospherics in the hallway with the flashlights. Um, how much of that is specifically intentional? Like, do you, do you, because you are directing the episode on top of having written it, do you look for specific iconic moments or do you just allow them to, to happen organically? No, there was, you know, <laughs> being a whore about it. <laughs> they got to have the suit. They got to have the flashlights. They got, you know, like that. But, you know, it's a welcome thing. I mean, you know, man, when the, the, everyone, you know, picks on uh, Crystal Skull. Yeah, yeah. But that trailer, when you saw the shadow of the fedora, like, oh my god! Yeah, plays the movie now. <laughs> you know, and you want those things, and so they those were intentional. The flashlight X, you know, was like a little I've seen it, mm-hmm. but everybody's happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, but you don't want it to be just a replay, just like you're just doing it for no reason. You hope that. Um, you could still make comment, you know, the, I don't do stairs so that you could mm-hmm. comment that time has gone by, that they're not the same guys, people that they were. Right. You know, uh, we talked a little bit about briefly, like if you'd had more episodes, you would have brought, see, get Howard Gordon in, uh, get Vince Gilligan in. I just want to kind of go back just to the original show. Uh, I mean, I know you've talked about how much you, uh, your brother, Darren, how much you respect him and you always uh, think he's such a fantastic writer, but just in the I, other, he's a fantastic writer. I don't respect. <laughs> I, don't respect him. I, know, I know the stuff he did to me when I was a kid. <laughs> I was just wondering in that, uh, in that room, what, what, who was another writer or writers that you really admired and what was it about them that you, uh, they, when you're working on the show, you're like, oh man, I really like the way they do this or that. Well, you know, Chris and all of them, everybody had a, you know, everybody had a, like Alex Gonza, who, you know, uh, is so great with Homeland. Um, he, he was very much like the logic police. When you go, well, this guy comes through the vent, you know, and then he, like, he's the guy's liver is awesome. And then he'd go, how'd he get up there? <laughs> like, that's horrible. And then you get really mad and go, Alex, oh, I'm not telling him any ideas. <laughs> but then you'd like think about it, and Alex would come up with an idea and an all logical. But you go, yeah, it's creep it up. <laughs> and so, I think that um, we gave each other that. That's my. Uh, um, but I. So what do you I, feel? I like they, to all of them. What do you feel that your contribution was? If uh, like Alex was like the logic, I knew, guy. I knew where to get lunch. <laughs> and a very important thing. Yes, yeah. There you go. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> well, you um, wrote uh, one of my favorite episodes, "Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man," where, of course, being from Texas, I love the Kennedy assassination conspiracy yeah. and all of that about because my grandfather was actually a journalist in Dallas, so we had our own angle. I was worried you could see yeah. shot Kennedy. <laughs> uh, I was like, no, yeah. well, not that I know of, but oh, I mean, no. because yeah, it's a cigarette smoking man. 
Uh, and I just loved how you basically put him in, like, every possible situation. Like, even at the end where he's like, you know why the Bills never win a Super Bowl? And then, of course, then it destroyed, you know, Miracle for me. Um, but <laughs> I just want to know, out of all the things that have happened recently, what would you have the cigarette-smoking man behind? Like, the wow. Seahawks winning the Super Bowl? <laughs> it's a bad game. <laughs> that, yeah. uh... Cornerback knowing that play was coming. Uh, <laughs> it was the only way. Um, uh, good question. I never think about that. <laughs> yeah. I love. I do. I love the idea of the cigarette smoking man sitting at, sitting exactly as we saw him at the end of the premiere, mm-hmm. with smoking through the hole in his neck, watching a sports fiasco and chuckling quietly to himself. Yeah, I the, love that. He I was love behind that, yeah. all the greats. Belichick does not win this year. Like, all right. Inflated the ball. Yeah, like when the whole yes. deflate gate thing <laughs> happened. He's just sitting at home going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 um. So we we just got the uh, notification from the booth to start wrapping mm-hmm. up really quickly. Uh, any final thoughts, questions about tonight's episode, or questions specifically for our guest uh, from the live chat before we move into a quick prediction section? Or is everyone still going, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh my yeah, God, it's oh pretty God. much like that. There was a question about possible spinoffs, but as you said, um, you're not really sure, you know, this is even it, right? Well, that's yeah. good. That's good water. Yeah, we got these, <laughs> these new agents coming in the next episode, the lovely uh, Lauren Ambrose and Robbie Amell, but Robbie needs to be Death Storm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, needs to be needs. To, but you know what? I'm I'm all in favor of like this being the Earth three version of uh, Ronnie Raymond. Yeah, we could do that. Why not? It's all connected. Well, you, you made it in this episode just as we're reaching the end of it. Uh, you have Scully telling Mulder the end that she feels confident that Mulder's going to find the answers to all his questions and that she's going to be there when that happens. Uh, very interesting that you were just drawing such an absolute line in the sand. I mean, for a show that's always been kind of like, oh, are we going to get an answer to all this? That you feel like for but Scully, she feels uh, for, yes, I know you. Yeah. But if you feel that uh, Scully feels. Uh, so confident that there is going to be some sort of answer out there and that they will actually get it. I think so. I mean, you know, that's me. You have to talk to Chris and Jillian, but um, I I think so. I think that um, if if they didn't believe that, that's when they really, everybody's upset. They're not living in the same house and all that stuff. But when they no longer believe that, that's when they go apart. So... All right. So, we have only two episodes remaining in this run of shows. And I want to, very quickly, before we wrap, as we always do, move into a brief, truncated prediction section. And now, the Gifford Light Show. And the key is we have to look at Glenn's place as we make these. Too late at night to be doing that. See what happens. (laughs) (laughs) So I do. I want to. I want to start with Frank, and I want to work this way. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I'm going to predict, I guess we're going to see a, a, a one-off episode and then a conspiracy heavy episode. I'm going to see, I feel like we've been talking about William so much this season. We've got to see him in the flesh. Right, Glenn? No. Well, uh, if I answer, <laughs> <laughs> 
Lucretia? I know, same thing. I mean, it has just been William, William, William. Uh, so definitely there's something to that. But I know that some people have thought about, you know, did Scully dream this whole thing up? I mean, there was never any conversion that it's Mulder's, you know, DNA as well. So I'm not really sure. I kind of just think, hope that William is actually a normal, healthy child. But being the X-Files, probably not. Hmm. Man, Poker Face Glenn, right? Yeah. Poker Face on him. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, William, uh, uh, Glenn, uh, what do you... Lucifer. Lucifer. What? That's, that's all at the same time as us. No. <laughs> so, uh, what uh, What do you predict will happen in the remaining two episodes? That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's him. a trap. That's a trap. Um, I My two big questions at this point, uh, one is how do we explain the return of the cigarette-smoking man who we saw literally incinerated in the original series finale, who now seems to, uh, at worst, he's got all his skin back. So that's interesting. The other question that I've asked uh, literally every show, uh, is Tad O'Malley dead? Are we ever going to see that guy again? I thought Joel was supposed to come back. Do we get to see him? <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. All right. We got a little nod. Just a little, little something. When, when Cancer Man pulls it off, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. O'Malley. Oh. <laughs> see, I've, I've watched that. Yeah. Oh. It was Joel McHale the whole time. Well, I guess before yeah. we last before we go, uh, Glenn, I know that we're coming to the end of the six episodes, but what do you have on the horizon for yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a pretty neat project with uh, Jason Blum, Blumhouse, and uh, Sci-Fi Channel. Um, this thing called Necronauts, and um, I gotta go home and write it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. We've kept you out way too late. I apologize, Glenn. No, no. I uh, again. I uh, what uh, After Buzz means to me for what yeah. um, you know. It's it's a, what you guys did uh, for the Intruders. I thought I really that's on Hulu, and. Um, I loved that show. And I loved everybody involved, and I thought it got short shrift. And uh, After Buzz was the only place that showed that any kind of uh, time of day, and I really, sure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Don't worry, we'll follow, follow yeah. you over to Necronauts for sure. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right. There you Sounds go. fun. Necronauts. <laughs> All right. No, no, it's a great project. Yeah. Just, uh, my wife and I are gonna we gotta write like nine of them before we go oh, do it, so it'll sure. be a while. <laughs> All right, well, I think that is going to wrap it up for us here at ABTV X-Files for the night. Glenn Morgan, thank you again so, so very, very much for taking the time and doing the show with us. My There we go. There we go. Uh, my, my wonderful co-host, where can people find you guys on the internet? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at HappyGoJackie, and then you can check me out at Iowa West uh, Tuesday nights at 9.30 with my improv team, Max. All right, guys, and if you can spell my name right, it's L-A-C-R-E-T-I-A-L-Y-O-N. Find me everywhere, including here tomorrow at 4 p.m. PST for the Castle After Show. Go Stars. (laughs) (laughs) And I am Lex Michael, all over social media, at the Lex Michael. Thank you guys for joining us again. Join us again next week at our usual time as we continue to unpack the mysteries of the X-Files. We will see you then. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 